Well, we're in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15 is our scripture reading. Remain standing for that reading. <laughs> or if you'd rather just talk, we can do that. I, I love the fellowship of the saints. I am a little anxious to preach, though, I'll admit that. One Sunday off is too much for me. I get too full over, over a two-week time. We're in Exodus 15. This is the song of Moses. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters pile up. The floods stood up in heap. The deep congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. And the end, the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. This is a song that Moses composed and that the people sang to the Lord. That's really where our praise and worship belongs. It belongs to the Lord. Uh, sometimes we think it's entertainment. Sometimes we think people are singing to us. And so we respond with applause. I wonder if we should do that. Real worship 
real singing belongs to the Lord. It's interesting here it says that the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And then at the very end, it talks about how um, the uh, Miriam and the women went out to sing the song. And it gives the first line of the song. So they sang the same song, which is interesting. Uh, the implication is that the men sang the song at first. But then the women joined in echoing the gratitude and the greatness of the Lord, singing the same song. The Bible is filled with songs. Have you ever noticed that? We have this. We have the song of the stars. We have the song of creation story. We have the song of Barak in, in the conquest and Deborah. We have the song of uh, Isaiah, the servant songs. There are about five of them or more that you can detect. There are the song of Solomon. It's a unique song and a wonderful, beautiful, and meaningful song, very symbolic and very graphic in all of its details. And then you come to the New Testament. There's just lots of singing everywhere. Mary sang the Magnificat, My soul doth magnify the Lord. And she was waiting on the birth of Jesus. And Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, sang a song, Benedictus, I will bless the name of the Lord of Israel. Lots of singing. When we get to the New Testament letters, the, the um, disciples sang a song. In fact, they sang a series of psalms probably on the night in which Jesus was betrayed between the taking of the Lord's Supper and the going out into the garden where Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. They sang. And in the New Testament church, the Bible says that we are to admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's a one another. It's a singing together. It's congregational singing. I would have loved to have heard that first group that sang because did you know that Israel didn't have too many warriors? They had been a slave people. They knew how to lay brick and mix mortar, but they hadn't been trained in the arts of the Pharaoh's army. And the Pharaoh's army was the greatest army on the face of the earth for hundreds and hundreds of years. If you study the whole sweep of biblical civilization, it will show us that there was one great power that ruled all through the ancient world, and it was the multiple kingdoms of the Pharaohs of Egypt. You read about that in your secular history. Uh, ancient, advanced, powerful, literary, extremely uh, advanced civilization were the Egyptians. And they ruled the world until about 500 years before Christ when another power arose, a great power called Babylon. And Babylon defeated Pharaoh Necho and took over the Egyptians' prominence in the ancient world. So if you look at the biblical perspective, there's two great powers that God delivers his people from, Egypt and Babylon. You read the book of Exodus, as we look at this morning, we see how God mightily delivered his people from all that was Egyptian bondage, the thraldom that they had there in that land. And then in the New Testament, you read about how, how God delivers his people from Babylon, not only in the return of the exile, but also in the great conquest of the Babylonian culture and religion so that the final conquest you'll read about in the book of Revelation where it says Babylon the great is fallen. God rescues his people from the two greatest forces of God's enemies against them. And that's really what you have here. 
One of the things that's important to notice here is in verse 3 where it says, Our God is a man of war. This particular passage talks about a feature of God Almighty that we don't preach too much about in the New Testament. We don't preach about God and warfare, God and fury, God and wrath, God and revenge, God and vengeance. In fact, some people find the God of the Old Testament, as they say, who, by the way, is the same God in the New Testament in every way. The absolute saying, I am the Lord, I change not. Yesterday, today, and forever, the Lord is the same. The immutability of God is one thing you can count on because you can look back and see what God did in that ancient day and you'll know he'll do the same thing and greater works in our day. And that's exactly what God has done. Let me just summarize it for you. Actually, what happened here is a great victory. It's, it's recorded in uh, the previous chapter, two verses back. In chapter 14, verse 30, there's a very significant sentence in the, in the text. It says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day. That was the day of salvation. That was the Lord's day. That was the day when God bared his mighty arm, clenched his fist, grabbed all of his weapons, and went after his enemies. And God has enemies. And let me tell you what the scriptures say that we just read about the enemy. Did you hear what the enemy said he would do? We read it there uh, in uh, verse uh, 9. The enemy said, I will pursue I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand, my hand shall destroy them. These are sworn enemies of God Almighty. There had already been a test back in Egypt in prior days of who the true God was. All the plagues that were brought upon Pharaoh and the Egyptian people were directed to one member of their pantheon of gods or another, the Nile River and all the rest of it. God had directed those plagues against the gods of Egypt. And God had convinced Pharaoh that he was God and that Israel was his son and that Israel belonged with God in the desert where they could worship the Lord and keep his Sabbaths and do his will and not belong in bondage to the enemies of God. So the picture here is a triumphant victory. That's what this is. This is a victory song after a great conquest. And let me tell you how great that conquest was. I mentioned that Egypt probably didn't have any good, good well-trained uh, army. It was even worse than that. They were on a battlefield with their women and their children their wives and their children. And they probably had some little flocks of animals and they probably had just a handful of, 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 of possessions. Now they had the treasures of Egypt somewhere in the, in, the, in the pack, I'll tell you that. That's what the Bible said. But they, they were out there vulnerable. And here comes Pharaoh's army. The largest, the most skillful, chariots, horses, archers, swordsmen, spearmen, everything that technology allowed in that days, and they were coming and they were coming fast. And this poor motley group of slaves, ex-slaves moving along there on foot, not armed with their women and children and their animals and their possessions completely vulnerable. 
You remember what Moses has said, stand, stand back, stand by, and see the power of the Lord. Watch the Lord work. And that's what God did. He completely rescued them. And there was a reason that God did that. It was found in that same passage where I said, thus the Lord saved them that day. The very next verse says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And that's exactly where we need to be this morning. As we witness this in scripture and as we see and hear the gospel of how God dealt with his enemy in the cross of Christ and how God deals with the enemy in your life and how he will deal with the enemy in a last day, in a great eschaton, in a great last triumphant day, how God will have destruction and vengeance and judgment and justice brought upon his enemy in the last day, the hear the gospel message. The Lord brought forth the things that was in his power. He brought forth his, in fact, that's what the very next verse there says, verse uh, 10, you blew with your wind. The word for wind and breath is the same word in the Hebrew. This is the Spirit of God at work. The Holy Spirit of God carrying out the will and the ways of God. And notice everything is said was how God took them and drowned them in the sea, plunged them to the depths, held them under, drowned them. The great wrath of God poured out upon those that would that would spoil and destroy and hurt and plunder God's people. This is what the Lord does in our salvation. We are in a thraldom of sin. We're held in bonds by the prince of this world. We are darkened in our understanding and our foolish heart is dark and we cannot understand and the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those that believe not. And we need someone to come and pull us up out of this situation we're in spiritually. And there's a direct link in the Bible between what God did in that great exodus in saving his people from Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness and finally in the conquest of Canaan and what God does with us. In fact, the very word is used in the New Testament to describe the death of Christ. It's translated his death or his decease, but it's the word exodus. Jesus accomplished an exodus. That is, he brought us out. That's literally what the word means. It means to just simply be led out. And God led us out of bondage by his mighty works. And so what you find here is the fury and the wrath of God being poured out. In fact, it's called the fury and the fire of God. God is a man of war. And this is what he does. He, you send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. He's changed the metaphor. 
All the talk about the Red Sea was about destruction by, and judgment by water, reminiscent of Noah's flood, when every imagination of every man was only evil continually. It's a quotation out of Genesis chapter 6. When God saw that there was that kind of wickedness on the face of the earth, there was a water destruction. But there's a hint here that there's a destruction beyond a water destruction. The chariot and the rider and the horse were cast into the sea. A flood judgment. But there's coming a fiery judgment. A judgment of fury and fire. And let's just bring it straight home to the individual. We don't have a lot of time to talk about it, but let me just read a few verses of Scripture. Sometime reading the Scripture is about as helpful as talking about it, isn't it? This is Paul in Romans 2, and he's talking to all of us, all of us that may think we're righteous and may think we are beyond God's judgment, or we may think maybe there's no such thing as God's judgment. Listen to Paul. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and, there's that word, fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every person who does evil. But the glory and the honor and the peace for everyone who does good. For God shows no partiality. This is the righteous wrath and judgment of God upon his enemies. Now, the question you have to ask your day and today to yourself, and you're going to have to be pretty critical in your judgment and pretty clear-minded in your thinking, and you're going to have to try to overcome certain visceral emotions that may be in your heart, which rise up out of simple rebellion itself, and ask yourself, am I an, an enemy of God? And the Bible says we're born at enmity against God. Or am I one of God's children? Has God said to me, Israel is my son. You are mine. Now there's a lot of things we need to look at. We'll skip over and get to the very end here because I'm out of time. Paul will grant me three more minutes. This song that is sung is sung in the book of Revelation. And it's found in Revelation chapter 15, verse 34. No, nope, that's not it. I've lost it. Well, 5, 5, 9, 
talks about singing the song of the Lamb. There were the elders worshiping before the Lord, down there, there uh, prostrate before the Lamb, and they're singing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Remember that last line? It says in the song of Moses that the Lord will reign forever and ever. That's the song of Moses. In Revelation here, and I can't find the exact verse right now, but it's it's what happens when you read over it too fast. It's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Here's a key word used in this. You've ransomed your people. That's what God did from Israel. He redeemed them. He ransomed them. He paid a price, a costly price to save his people. And that's what God has done for us. He has paid a price, a costly price. His great love for us in order to redeem us, to ransom us from the thraldom of sin and Satan and slavery and wrath and destruction, he has given his son. And his son has shed his precious blood for our salvation. God is in the saving business. And He's done it so that we will fear him and believe him. Remember the text we read out of Exodus 14? That's what God wants us to do. There needs to be a healthy fear of God, a reverential awe before him, knowing of his great power and his great majesty. But then there's a belief in him, a faith in him, a trust in him, a reliance in him, knowing his love and mercy and grace and his provision that he's made for our salvation. Can you see how these two emotions that seem to be opposite can come together? This fear of God, which is the beginning of our wise living and our path of righteousness. And at the same time, this faith that draws us to the Lord saying, that God, as the text said, that is my God. That is my Father's God. I will praise Him. I will love him. I will believe him. I will serve him. I will dwell in him. I will bask in his love and mercy and glory. Even though there is a certain fear in approaching him, somebody has removed the phobia. And that's Christ who is the mediator between God and man. And he has brought us to the true God of heaven and earth, the mighty God, the almighty God, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings us to this God. And how does Jesus tell us refer? Heavenly Father. Father. Look what Israel's father did for them. You think that God who spared not his own son will not freely bestow upon us all of this benefit of salvation well of course he will of course he will that's what the believing heart exclaims of course he will save us 
Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Whoever believes in him has life. He that believeth not is condemned because he did not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is his name.